Isaiah, thanks for sharing your story with us this morning. Appreciate hearing it. Heard it the first service, and it's just cool to hear how faithful God's been to you and what he's done in your life. It's an honor to, to have you share it with us. Good morning. How you guys doing? Well, wow, that was a little less than I expected after an extra hour of sleep last night. The first service, I was like, wow, you guys look wide awake, extra rested. You feel extra rested? Yeah? This was one of the, so when, no. So when I was a student, this was like one of my favorite weekends ever. It was like an extra hour of sleep. I love that. Somehow I managed to squander that every time because I'd just stay up later and then I wouldn't get any extra rest, and it was, I had myself to blame, but I loved it. But now I sort of am jealous of you guys because I have kids. I don't know if you know about little kids, but they don't care what time it is. They wake up when they wake up. And when you just say, oh, it's actually an hour earlier, so don't wake up yet, they still wake up at the same time. And so I haven't enjoyed fall back for a few years now, um, but that's all right. This year, we were blessed by the Lord because for some reason they decided to sleep in an extra two hours. So they woke up at 6.15 and I am well rested. So once again, this is one of my favorite weekends of the fall. We're back at it. Oh man, I'm excited to be here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Dave Orweller. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. I work a lot of times in the city. Uh, most of my time is there. But I'm excited to be here and, and share this morning uh, with you the next part of our, our sermon series on James you know, this series has really been a series of like call-outs one after the other, hasn't it? Have you guys been feeling that? I've been feeling that. Each week is like, whoa, James was like pretty straightforward and just cut to the chase and he's calling these people out. And, and really what he was trying to do is just say, look, do you have a real and living faith? And is it impacting these different areas of your life? Is it impacting your attitudes and your actions and your relationships and the way you speak and the way you think? what you value, and uh, I've been really challenged by that. Genuine faith is meant to impact every area of our lives, and that's a, that's a tall order, isn't it? And I think it's really good for us to just take a step back every now and then and think, yeah, does that describe my life? A genuine, living faith lived out in my life. And our, our hope for the sermon series is that you would be doing that as we have each week a chance to See the next thing we're sort of called out is that you just take a step back and think, what would God have me do in response to this? I hope you've been able to do that. Well, if you were here with us last week, you remember that uh, Kyle Winters was here and, and he talked about godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom, true wisdom versus false wisdom. And what we saw was that worldly wisdom is characterized by pride. It puts self above everything else. It's rooted in what's right for me, number one. It's focused on the here and now. It doesn't even take God into account. It's based on all kinds of lies. We see and hear worldly wisdom all over, don't we? We're surrounded by it. We're fed messages all the time that are in line with what the world would say, right? The world loves to tell us that you and only you know what would make you happy, and that really is the most important thing. And so if that's the case, then you do you, right? You do you. Don't let any hater tell you otherwise. If it feels good, do it. Get out there, get yours, build your kingdom, unleash your inner awesome, right? Like Kyle said last week, I've never had anybody actually say unleash your inner awesome, but the message was there behind some of those things. 
You guys like Diet Coke? Anybody? Is that just an older person thing? Um, I've learned to like Diet Coke now in my life. Um, have you heard their newest slogan, anybody? Heard that? Diet Coke, because I can. Check out their most recent advertisement. the message of the world, isn't it? Because I can. It makes me feel good. I can attest Diet Coke does make you feel good. I've, I've given in a little bit. Life is short. You do you, whatever that is. Whatever that is. It might be weird, but you do you. It's all around us, right? We also saw last week what true godly wisdom looks like. Characterized by humility, it's pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. It produces a harvest of righteous living. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. I'd love to see that. But the problem with that is, and this is where we're going to be going today in James chapter 4, is that when James looks at the church, he doesn't see a bunch of people, this beautiful picture of them living out godly wisdom in their lives. In fact, he sees quite the opposite. He sees all kinds of sin and selfishness and pride. And so today, like in many of the weeks before, we're going to see James call out these believers, say, what's the deal? What's going on? And I think as we do that, there's going to be a little bit of a call out for us to you this morning. And I hope, my prayer is that it's a really good one. I hope it's really good for us as we listen and hear what God will want to say to us through that. So that's where we're headed this morning. But before we jump in, let's pray. God, thanks for today and the chance that we have to come together to worship your hearts and our attention to you. And we want to ask you to speak to us this morning. Pray you speak to each one of us individually and all of us together collectively that we would see how to live out our faith genuinely and how especially how that looks when we see we have sin in our lives. Pray that you would speak this morning and we'd listen to you and be quick to respond. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we're gonna jump right in. This is James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? There's a bunch of things, one right after the other, right? First things first this morning, there's a problem, and the problem is sin. This is a pretty intense call-out, right? He's saying, take an honest look at your lives, and this is what you'd see, fighting and quarreling and lust 
and hate and envy and pride and jealousy, selfish ambition, every kind of sin. There's a problem indeed, and when we have a problem, the first and most important step to take is to admit that there's a problem. And so that's where this chapter begins with a little loving confrontation. Your lives are full of sin, and that shouldn't be. Why is this? You ever wonder that? Why, if we know not to sin, and if at least on some level we don't want to sin, why do we keep finding ourselves living in sin, doing things we know we're not supposed to do that would fall into that camp of things that James listed out? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I think it's a good question. I think it's a really important question for us to answer if we're ever really going to honestly deal with the sin in our lives. And that's exactly the question that James hopes to answer in these verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And all these other things that he listed out. And before we go on and talk about the answer to that question, I just want to point out something. There is a reason for sin. There's a reason for that problem. Sin isn't just happening. Something's causing it. You know, I have... uh, Two boys, one's three, a little over three, and one's a little over a year and a half. And we're getting to this phase in our life where they're fighting each other. They're old enough to fight each other. And usually it starts pretty well-mannered. They're having fun, kind of fighting each other a little bit. And then at some point, usually it turns a corner and one of them gets really mad, upset. And so inevitably, I have to step in and intervene. And, and this is usually how it goes. Luke, why'd you hit Jake? Because... Just because? Yeah. No reason at all? No. Really? Yeah. He just like says it straight and it's cute. It's really cute. He's a year and a half. But it's not true, right? I know it's not true. Nobody there would be like, oh, you're right. There is no reason. It's just because. We know there's a reason he's hitting his brother. And uh, I also know that for him to learn and grow, he needs to embrace there's a little more going on than just it just is, right? Something is going on here, and it's important enough for you to figure out what it is so you can address it, address it and deal with it. You know, if he never embraces that something is causing this, he's going to walk around the rest of his life slapping people in the face. That's a genuine fear I have <laughs> right now. But I'm trusting someday... He's going to learn and embrace there's something going on more than it just is. And then hopefully he'll have the desire to correct whatever it is that's going on. I hope. I'm praying for him. I know it's a silly example, and I know you're way more mature than my one-and-a-half-year-old, so don't think I'm kind of lumping you in the same category there. But even still, I know plenty of adults that are stuck in denial. They're making the same mistakes over and over and over and the reason is they won't take seriously there's a problem or they don't take seriously that they can figure out the cause of the problem there's something to look into and figure out why is this happening so what is the cause of all the sin well if you're like me you're pretty quick when you sin to blame other people (laughs) That's what I tend to do. That's the quickest thing. Oh, I don't think that's me. Listen, we're tempted to blame other people, blame the devil, blame God, and none of those are right, right? It's not other people. You can certainly let other people influence you, but ultimately they don't choose sin for you. You do. You know, blaming people for your sin is something that's been happening ever since sin 
first happened, right? If you think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and God comes to Adam and says, what happened? Right? Basically, what happened? What, does anybody know what he did? This woman you put here with me, she did it. And then, so then she had me do it too, so it's, you know, it's probably her fault. And maybe it's your fault. You put her here, right? I don't know if he actually said that, but he did say, this woman you put here, right? He was so quick to shift the blame from himself to someone else, right? He sold Eve out just like that. And this is something that we do pretty naturally, right? We don't have to be taught how to do this. My three-year-old son has been saying some things that I found really interesting. You know, when he first said it, I was like, something. He can't be saying what he actually means, right? So inevitably, he wants to do stuff he can't do, and I stop him from doing it. And so this is, this is what he's been saying, right? Actually, he'll respond to that by like hitting or <laughs> kicking or throwing something. And it's always an adventure in our household at this phase. That's going to pass too soon, I think, I hope. Um, but... He's been saying this. He gets mad and he's like, you're making me hit you. I'm like, what? Certainly you don't mean that. You're making me hit you because you won't let me play downstairs. I'm like, what? Nobody says that. Nobody who's old enough to know, obviously, that's not the, the case. That's not going anywhere with me. So I, I was like, look, buddy, that's not true, man. You're... I'm, I'm not letting you do that and you're getting upset about it, but you're choosing to hit me <laughs> as a result, man. That's your choice, not mine. So that sort of logic doesn't work very well with a three-year-old. So it doesn't go very far, but I'm trying to work on him with that, right? We don't have to be taught to shift blame. We know right away it's easier, right? So how about Eve? Did she respond much better when God confronted her, right? no. But there were no other human beings around to blame, so she said, well, this, the devil here, he, he did this. And actually, you know, he had something to do with it, but she chose to listen to the devil, right? So she just passes blame. But God knew with both of those cases, right, it's not someone else's fault, it's not the devil's fault for this. Yeah, the devil is there and he's gonna tempt you, lie to you, try to look around and find someone to devour, but ultimately, he doesn't choose sin for you. You do. If you're a follower of Jesus, the devil has no control over you. But you can choose to give the devil a foothold in your life if you listen. And as long as we're on the blame train, right, it's not God's fault either. And some of you are like, God's fault? Of course it's not God's fault. But honestly, when we get into life, we know God is in control. He's sovereign. He could let us be tempted here or he could not. And he's, he's letting me be tempted. It's really his fault. You ever find yourself blaming God for some of the sin in your life? If we go back to James 1 that we saw the very first week of this sermon series, we read this in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Not only does God not tempt us, but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that he's faithful to us in our temptation. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, he's faithful to provide a way out from under it. God's not our enemy in our temptation. He's our ally. If we give in to sin, we give in. So obviously you know where this is going. At the end of the day, the problem is not outside of us. The problem is within us. We are the reason for the sin in our lives. Our own selfish desires. 
we go back to the passage we're reading today in James 4, it says, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Passions or literally pleasures, our sinful desires, they're at war within us. If we read that whole passage from James 1, after it said that God doesn't tempt us, it says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. We're dragged away by our own evil desire. There's no one else to blame. So why is that so important for us to embrace? Why did I spend so much time talking about who it's not, right? I think as long as we deny that there's a sin problem with a real cause and that our hearts are the real cause, we cannot and will not do what is necessary to address the problem. We're going to get to what is necessary in just a minute, but first I just want to ask you, what about you? If you look at your own life, you take a step back and look, how are you denying or minimizing sin? Maybe you're not outright saying it like my sons do. How are you tempted to shift the blame for your sin to someone or something else? The reality is we have selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-gratifying, self-promoting desires in our hearts and they're at war within us, fighting against our love and devotion and faithfulness to God and producing, instead of a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of sin in our lives. You guys ever experienced that? This is the environment we find ourselves in, the world. When James talks about the world, he's not talking about the physical universe. He's talking about a sort of ungodly system of human life lived in separation from God or in opposition to him. He's talking about life without God in the picture, apart from him, life lived according to the worldly wisdom that Kyle talked about last week. The world, it's a playground for our prideful, selfish desires. It's a playground for worldly people and systems and structures that leave God totally out of the picture. It's a playground for the devil and the spiritual forces of evil. And so here we are, attacked by messages from the world and messages from the devil, and they appeal to our own evil, selfish desires from within us and they're all working together to draw us away from God. And at the end of the day, we have to choose who we will love, who we'll be faithful to, the world or God. James actually used some pretty strong language in that passage, didn't he? Did you catch that in there? In verse four, you adulterous people, you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose? The scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. The Bible describes God as a jealous lover. Jealous in the sense that he wants our undivided love and devotion and is unwilling to share it with anyone or anything else. So being a friend of the world, it's like committing spiritual adultery. This is how it goes down. We're surrounded by the world. We pay attention to the world. We let some worldly thoughts and attitudes catch our attention, pique our interest. We start entertaining some thoughts 
And that ter- turns into a little innocent flirting. And then one thing leads to another. And before we know it, we've walked right down a path and landed in the arms of another lover. That's the kind of language James is using to describe what's going on in our hearts. The world is a slippery slope for our hearts, isn't it? I think it's especially hard for a lot of us here this morning, a lot of you this morning. You're bright, young, educated, capable men and women. In the world, the whole world is before you. Go get whatever you want. It's promising you joy and excitement and fulfillment if we would just turn from our first love and pursue this lover with devotion. Listen to that voice long enough and before you know it, you're far from God and committed to another lover. James goes one step further. Being a friend of the world is the same as making yourself God's enemy. Make no mistake, we cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. We're either a lover or an enemy and we have to choose and as we walk Through our lives, we do choose by the choices we make, one way or the other. Jesus had a lot to say about the world and letting the world entice us, and he was teaching in Matthew 6, verse 19. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word translated money there is mammon. It really means possessions, all the stuff that we can go get in the world. Jesus promises us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure? What do you treasure this morning? Maybe the grades you're looking for, internship you're looking for, significant other you're looking for, that next first awesome job is going to fulfill your life. Maybe the praise of people are looking really spiritual or finding comfort and leisure, or pleasure. I don't know what it is, but if something came to your mind, what does that reveal to you about your heart for God? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. What other masters do you find yourself serving? What controls how you spend your time or your money? What consumes your thoughts as you go about your day? Jesus promised either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't take two lovers and be faithful to either of them. Where's your love and devotion? Guys, it can be hard to hear stuff like this, right? It is a call out. I think if we're honest, we'll all find that we're flirting with the world in one way or another. So yes, there's a problem. And the problem is that our hearts are divided. Yeah, there's sin in our life, but that's revealing, really, that our hearts are divided. 
So what are we supposed to do about this, right? I've spent a lot of time on the downer part of this talk, right? Hopefully we'll turn it around. Verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's a lot of things he listed out in those verses, but I think it really kind of all boils down to two options, two ways that we can respond when we're confronted with our sin in a divided heart. Humility or pride? Pride will ignore sin. Pride will minimize sin. Pride will deny that sin is a real problem. Pride will blame others. Pride sets itself up in opposition to God. Pride will not submit. Pride will not accept responsibility. Pride will hide. Pride leaves us vulnerable to the world and vulnerable to the devil. Pride will not turn to God for help. Pride seeks to avoid pain right now, but in the end, it leads to even greater pain. The Bible has a lot to say about pride. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. We could go on and on and on. Make no mistake, sinning is not good, but responding to that sin with pride is even worse. On the other hand, humility acknowledges the full weight of sin. Humility agrees with God that sin is a serious problem that needs to be addressed. Humility doesn't hide. Humility accepts responsibility. It turns to God for help and receives grace. Humility accepts sorrow now but in the end, it leads to joy. James has given us a picture of what it looks like to respond to our sin with humility, by repenting. Repenting means to turn. It means to submit to God. It means drawing near to God by confessing our sin and grieving our sin with a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow isn't feeling sorry for ourselves, but being sorry for our sin against God and letting that provoke change in us. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Repenting means accepting God's grace and forgiveness, and it means as we move forward in our life, obeying God. Humility is the foundation of repentance and it's the foundation of our real and living faith. This is what James has been talking about for this whole book, right? He's been challenging us to live out our faith in all of these areas and today he's challenging us to let this faith shape our response to sin when we see sin in our lives. This is the very heart of the gospel, right? We're broken, we're sinful people in need of forgiveness. And that's true before we ever believe in Jesus and it's just as true after we believe in Jesus when we sin after that. Our need for Jesus, our need for grace never goes away. 
and our response to sin reveals the condition of our hearts and the quality of our faith. We show what our faith is made of by how we respond to our sin. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 4. I love these verses. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith, the faith we profess. He's saying, we say we have faith. Let's live it out. This is how. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Guys, Jesus is here to help us in our time of need. And when is our time of need if it isn't when we sin, when we're confronted with sin in our lives, in divided hearts? So how will we respond to our sin? I think that's really the main question James is bringing up for us to wrestle with in this passage. So I have a, I have a confession to make. When I was giving this talk to you, I was actually supposed to be teaching on all of chapter four and then also the first six verses of chapter five, and I'm not going to get there, not at all, okay? Oops. I didn't even try, to be honest. Here's why, because I read through it, and this is what I realized. This is the foundation to everything else that comes after this. Everything else that comes after this is talking about how our faith and our humility should impact the way we treat one another. It should impact our attitude toward our own accomplishments and the things we do and the pride that we can take in them. It should impact our humility toward our possessions and the things that we have and how we can take pride in those things. Humility is what James is describing in all of those, but humility doesn't come from us trying to make it happen in each of those areas. Right? It begins with humility before God in our hearts and it flows out from there into all those other things. So before we wrap up, wrap up this morning, I just want to ask us, if we can, to just take a minute and honestly look at our lives, okay? I have a couple questions for you. The first one is this. How are you flirting with the world? What sin, what worldly passion, what possession, achievement, success, whatever it may be, what is it that's threatening to draw your love and devotion away from the Lord? If you can think of something, what step of humble faith is God calling you to take with that? Second question for you is this, how are you responding to sin when you see sin in your life? I think James is highlighting something for us that's really significant. I think I grew up in the church and for a long time I thought, man, the point of all this is, yeah, do good stuff, don't do bad stuff, try really hard, focus your energy as you're following Jesus on just don't screw up. It's good not to sin, it's good to live to please God, but I think there's so much more than that and I think that's what James is highlighting this morning. Certainly, a living faith will motivate us to avoid sin and to do what pleases God in the first place but it will also motivate us to humble ourselves, turn from our sin, and run to Jesus when we do. Let's not forget that second part of it. Okay, I wrestled with whether or not I should say this because I'm not actually sure if it's true. I'm just gonna say something. You evaluate whether it's true or not. 
Okay, it's a guess. I'm wondering, what is gonna determine the passion and the love and the joy and the excitement that you feel in your relationship with God in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years from now when you look back? There's, I don't know. There's probably a lot of things, so maybe this is a bold statement. I wonder if the biggest factor isn't how you respond to your sin right now. I wonder if that doesn't direct your path all along the way. Wouldn't it be awesome if we respond to our sin with a bold faith that brings about humility and turning to Jesus quickly when we sin? Each week of this sermon series, we've asked everybody to stand and read through James 1, through 25 together as sort of a prayer that we would live this out. We'd be living out our faith um, and not just saying we have a faith And so I want to ask if you will do that with me this morning to close, if you'd stand and read this together as a prayer. It's James 1, 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. God, thanks for today, and thank you for the chance uh, to read James 4, and look into our own lives. And thank you for the reminder that our faith is meant to impact how we respond to our sin even now. God, I pray we'd be men and women of humility, men and women who turn to you quickly when we see that we have sin in our life, who turn away and turn to you. Thank you that you are our advocate for us and you give us more grace when we need it pray that we would cling to you. I pray that our church would be known not as a bunch of people who never ever sin and have it all together, but as a bunch of people who respond humbly to our sin and turn from it and and run to you. We pray you do that in our hearts as we move forward. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, guys, you can have a seat. Today we, we wanted to end by taking communion Together, we know it's only through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and find mercy and grace when we need it most. So when we take communion, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us in our place so that we could be restored to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus or if you believe in him or not. And if that's you, I don't want you to feel any pressure to take communion with us this morning. We're excited you're here. We're honored that you're here figuring out what you believe about Jesus. But if that's you, we'd love to invite you to consider God's invitation to you. In John three sixteen, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's offered us grace and forgiveness in a restored relationship with him if we would humble ourselves and turn to him.
If you're here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus, then maybe you just need to use this morning to remember freshly and new you have a great high priest who is here to help you in your time of need. And maybe we just need to remember and thank God and celebrate that that's true. If you're looking for gluten-free stuff, it's up here on my left. You're right. Paul described communion this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then celebrate together. God, we thank you for today and we thank you for a chance to test our hearts, look into our own lives, and to remember our need for you. I thank you for an opportunity this morning to celebrate what an awesome and amazing reality it is that if we would just turn to you, you will restore our relationship. And it's because Jesus, death and resurrection. We want to remember Jesus. We thank you that you're quick to respond to us when we humble ourselves and turn to you. And we want to celebrate that this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.